listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. As it is in heaven, Jesus prayed that. That's the series that we're in right now, a three-part series. This is week three, on earth as it is in heaven. And here's what we hope you walk away with. Number one, heaven should captivate our heart. Whatever is going on in heaven should be happening in my heart and in your heart. Secondly, heaven should permeate our relationships. If we know anything about heaven, more than uh, streets of gold and gates of pearl and crystal rivers and all of the sights that we think we will see and enjoy, the most beautiful thing about heaven is relationships, about how we relate with one another. And probably one of the most painful things on earth is relationships, how we don't relate the way that we should. And so last week we spent an hour talking about um, relationships. Heaven should permeate our relationships. This morning, part three, finally, we see heaven, um, heaven captivating our heart, heaven permeating, permeating our relationships as the body of Christ. But thirdly, what I want you to see this morning is that heaven should infiltrate the world. In other words, we should be this base station, and if, if our relationships are uh, being influenced by heaven and we're relating the way heaven should, we should be then leaving this place and going out and trying to uh, build relationships with those that don't know Jesus Christ, Christ to reach them with the gospel. And so heaven should in, infiltrate the world through us. And I've got two verses this morning, if you can believe that, that I want you to think about as we look at and think about how we should be reaching those without Jesus Christ. And those two verses are found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So if you turn in your Bibles there, I want to read those verses. I want to break those verses down. I want to tell you why Paul said what he said in those verses. And then I want to challenge you to leave here and do something about what God's Word says this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 2, if you're in the New Testament um, and you can uh, find First uh, Thessalonians a uh, little ways to the right, uh, um, you see the Gospels and then uh, Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then First and Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, two of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? So he's thinking about heaven. He's not thinking about earth. He's looking forward. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? He's talking to the people of Thessalonica. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy, right? Now, let me break these verses down for you. Let me just give you the main words and tell you what they mean. And then I'll try to put them in their context, and then I'll try to make some application. First, the first word is hope. And the word hope here in this setting, literally the word hope means expectation or to make to hope or to give hope. Paul is saying, I look at you people in Thessalonica and how the gospel has taken root in your life and I now find hope. 
Essentially, what Paul is saying is, I am hoping that other people will get saved, and my hope is in your salvation. You are my hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse number 3, it says this about, it says this about hope. I'll go to verse 2 because I can't tell where verse 3 is in. There it is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, for he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The living hope that is ours. And Paul said, for what is my hope? His hope is gospel centric. His hope is for their salvation. And they are the fulfillment of his hope. What is my hope? My hope is that people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, you sorrow is the, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. Listen to me. Without the gospel, without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have no hope. You have no reason to hope. And so he gives us this word hope. What is my hope? My, my hope is that, that you would be saved. That is what I'm hoping in. Secondly, you are my joy. The word joy means delight and gladness, but this particular form of the word uh, joy means a joy springing forth from an awareness of God's abundant grace. When I reflect on the grace of God that has come to me, then joy erupts from my heart. Now, most of us live in the happiness realm. That is a substandard realm, and happiness is based on circumstances. Happiness is based on I meet somebody, I talk to somebody, I like them, they like me, they make me happy, I make them happy, we're happy, that's circumstantial, or, or everything's going my way financially, or everything's going my way, my kids are great, so we've got this happiness, but there is a joy that Paul is talking about here that springs forth from an awareness of God's abundant grace. And so Paul says, you are our hope. You are our joy. There is joy that is filling my heart because I've seen God's abundant grace poured out on you. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, and First Peter chapter 1 in verse number 8, listen to what he says. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not... Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There is a joy that can fill the heart of the believer that is a product of our awareness of the grace of God that is shed abroad in our hearts for us no matter what our circumstances are. Third word, hope, joy. We see it here in the text, crown. What is the word crown? The word crown, there are two words for crown. One is stephanos and one is diadem. A diadem or crown that's called a diadem is a crown that you put on a king's head. A stephanos is a victor's crown. It's something that's made out of a wreath and they had their Olympics and whoever won the race or whoever won the boxing match or whoever um, won the four by 100, they would get a wreath instead of a gold medal. That was, that, that's called the stephanos. He said, you are our stephanos. You are our crown. Um, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's like the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head the word in the Greek in John is stephanos. It's not diadem. Why was there a crown placed on his head? 
Why was there a wreath of thorns woven and placed on the head of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ was a victor over sin. Victory was won over sin by his death. And, and so here's what, here's what Paul is trying to say to the Thessalonians. What makes my life a life of victory? What is winning for me? What makes my life significant, Paul said. Listen carefully. Paul said, what makes my life significant is you Thessalonians, right? You Thessalonians, when, when you hope in Christ, you are my hope. You Thessalonians, when you find your joy in the grace of God, you are my joy. When you Thessalonians come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and you understand the victory that Christ wrought through his death, burial, and resurrection, then you are what I consider a win, victory, significance, meaning, purpose, and life. Seeing others come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying it's what gives me victory in life. He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Paul said, here's what I've done when I went to Thessalonica. He said, I gave my life to you. And he said, you are worth giving my life to when people are saved through the proclamation of the gospel. That is victory. That is victory. When life is over and the greatest victory that anyone could boast in would, would be people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, then that is a life well lived. So the third word is crown. The fourth word is rejoicing. And literally the word isn't just rejoicing. We see it in the English text. But the word is boasting. Paul is, is boasting. He, he's, look at the text again. He said, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. It's okay to boast in people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what Paul says. This is, this is the thing that I rejoice in because if I were to take my life and I were to map it out and say, this is what I want to accomplish through my life, he said, I want to see people come to know Christ. And then if you go to verse 20, he says, it is not, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Glory is the last word I want to look at before I try to tell you why Paul said what he's saying. The word glory here is the word uh, doxa, where we get our word doxology. Um, the word doxology means several things, but I think Paul means every one of them here in this text. First of all, the word doxology means renowned. He said, you are, glory is, is this thing that you're known for. Paul said that my life has meaning if I am known for my association with you in taking the gospel to you and bringing heaven to Thessalonica and you folks have been saved. Paul said, listen, if I want to be renowned for anything, if I want any glory to say you are my glory, if I want to be renowned for anything, I want to be renowned. I want to be known. I want to be famous for seeing people come to know Jesus Christ because of what I do with my time and my resources and my words. That's what Paul is saying here. You, you are, is, it, is it not you for you are our glory? But if you look at the word glory in the Hebrew, it means to 
be heavy. In other words, when you talk about glory, you're talking about something that has inherent worth. Here's what Paul is saying. You are what I want to be known for. The thing that I consider to be of utmost worth is your soul, is your salvation, is your life lived for Christ. The thing that I want to be known for, Paul said, is when I die and I stand before Jesus, you are standing there with me when Christ returns. He's saying your salvation is what gives my life ultimate value. Your salvation is what gives my life ultimate significance. Your salvation is what gives my life ultimate purpose. So this is what gives my life meaning and perspective and what drives me to give my life away so that others might have eternal life, right? So Paul is saying that what gives my life meaning and purpose and significance is not in the material realm. It's not in the financial realm. It's not in the, the world's sense of success. What gives my life meaning is relational, and what gives my life meaning is spiritual. Okay? So this is what he's saying in these two verses. Now, I'm going to try to make some application from that, but let me, let me, let me just take a, a few minutes and give you some background to why Paul said this. First of all, let me begin with the book of Acts. As you look at the book of Acts, you understand that the first 12 chapters, the predominant character of the book of Acts in the first 12 chapters is a guy named Peter. But in Acts chapter 8, we see Paul there at the stoning of Stephen, so, or Saul, and we, so we see him persecuting the church. In Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, we see Saul converted, transformed, but then when we come to Acts chapter 13, and Acts chapter 13 to 28, that is all about Paul. So we got these two primary characters. We've got Paul and we've got Peter. So we understand that from the book of Acts, but we also know in the book of Acts that Paul took three missionary journeys, right? He took three missionary journeys. In other words, when Paul got saved, there was something inside of him that compelled him to want to see people that had never heard the gospel hear the gospel. There was something inside of him that wanted to see Jews come to know Christ and to see Gentiles come to know Christ. And so Paul struck out immediately upon his salvation and started traveling all over the known world at that time to tell everybody that he could everywhere that he went about Jesus Christ. Missionary journey number one was in Acts 13 and 14. Missionary journey number two was in Acts 15 through the middle of Acts chapter 18. Missionary journey number three was in the middle of Acts 18 to Acts 21 and verse number 17. Where does Thessalonica come in? Paul is um, in his second missionary journey. He finds himself traveling around. You know in Acts chapter 16, Paul went to Philippi and they threw him in jail and the Philippian jailer was saved. Paul and Silas were beaten up pretty bad, put in the inner prison, and then the Philippian jailer uh, took them home with him, began to clean them up, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And the Philippian jailer was radically transformed. Paul left Philippi and went to Thessalonica. We know in Acts 17, verses 1 to 9, that while Paul was in Thessalonica, he was, the, the, the text says he was there for three Sabbaths. It's estimated by most scholars that Paul was in Thessalonica for a period of three months. But while he was in, um, in Thessalonica for three months, he spent three um, Sabbaths teaching. But before it was all said and done, he ended up getting run out of Thessalonica 
right? And he was run out of Thessalonica. You can read in the book of Acts, Acts 17. He was run out of Thessalonica, and he ended up in Berea, and he was run out of Berea, and he went to Athens, and he, he, then he left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And when he got to Corinth, he had Timothy with him, and he said, Timothy, I want you to go back to Thessalonica. I wasn't there long, and I want you to find out what happened in Thessalonica and come back and give me a report. So Timothy went back to Thessalonica, got this glowing report of what was happening in Thessalonica, and then Paul writes this letter back to the Thessalonian church that we're looking at this morning that we find these two verses in. Now, before we consider what happened there for Paul to get to this point, I want you to realize that I don't think if I didn't, I may have missed something, but I don't think Paul um, knew anyone in Thessalonica. In other words, Paul spent his life with this compulsion to go where the gospel had never been heard. And they were not, they were not vacation spots. They were not places of ease. All that Paul cared about wherever he went was that there were lost people there. So Paul was constantly giving his life to go engage with and encounter lost people. Secondly, here's what we know about Paul, and I believe Paul is just springboarding off of Acts 1.8. Um, uh, secondly, we know that Paul taught his followers that they should be ambassadors for Christ, that they should be pleading with men in Christ. Listen, that they should be pleading with men in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God, right? That we should be, Paul taught his followers, that, that we, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we should be, just like him, going where people have never heard the gospel, we should be going and engaging people and compelling them to believe the gospel. And I don't want to get into all the, perhaps, the objections that there are to do that. It's interesting that people, that would, people would reject that, but uh, would, would reject that. But so, so Paul is going to, work, to, to people that he doesn't know to take the gospel, and he compels the people that he goes to to go to people that they don't know to take the gospel. This is a Christian thing. It's interesting, uh, as we talk about on earth as it is in heaven, that when you look at 1 Thessalonians, there are five chapters, and every chapter ends with a crescendo about heaven on earth as it is in heaven. It ends with a crescendo about heaven. And, and I believe as Paul was writing 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, as he's writing that, that he was so overcome with excitement when he got to the end of chapter 2. He said, what is my hope? I don't believe he was calm about it. I don't, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't believe he was, I just don't believe he was real formal about it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe he was Presbyterian about it. I believe he was a little charismatic about it. Right? I believe he was just beside himself. I believe his skin was crawling when he wrote this verse. I believe he was so excited when Timothy came back and said, Paul, we were just there three months, but the gospel caught fire while it was there. And there is life there that can only be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul wasn't calm about it. He was shouting. 
while he was writing, wherever he was writing this letter, probably somebody was in the kitchen cooking or somebody was folding laundry. I don't know what they were doing, but they were just doing life. Maybe somebody just brought pizza in and they heard Paul back in the back room saying, what is what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? He's saying, Thessalonians, it's you. It's you. Because he had such a value on people coming to know Christ. And he had such an appreciation for seeing the grace of God poured out on these people. And he had such an appreciation for the power of the work of the Spirit in a small body of believers there in a city that was completely lost that he was overwhelmed by it. Now, what did Paul do while he was in Thessalonica? And Paul lays that out for us. And I want to give you three words that talk about what Paul did. First of all, when Paul went to Thessalonica, and by the way, every one of us can do this. Every one of us can do this. Every one of us should do this. If you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, and we look at what Paul did when he went to Thessalonica, you should do this when you go to school. You should do this when you go to work. You should do this when you go to family reunion. I don't know what your address is, but if, if, you're, if your number is 637 and the person beside you is 639, you should do this toward the people at, at, at 639 or whatever the address is beside you, Right? There are, three things Paul, there are three things Paul did in this text that we're going to see in First and Second Thessalonians. I'm only going to touch on it. First of all, Paul loved the Thessalonians. Paul loved. Paul loved. See, Paul loved. Okay, good. Give, give us something a little deeper, preacher. Paul loved. He just loved them. Not only did he love them, and I'll show you a few scriptures that point that out. But Paul labored among them. Paul labored among them. And thirdly, Paul longed for them to be in heaven with him. Paul longed for them to be in heaven with him. And so Paul loved. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse um, number 8. Chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. He says, so... Being affectionately desirous of you, he says. In fact, if you'll go back, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Uh, There's no more beautiful picture of love than a, a mother who's just birthed a child, brought it into the world, and they take that child into the delivery room and they laid that child up on its mom's chest and that mom holds that child close and that child begins to, to, to nurse, right? And find nourishment from its source, its, its mom. And Paul said, when I went there among you, I was gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That, that's love. That's love in its purest form. That's love in its deepest form. That's love in its natural form. He said there was something when I got to Thessalonica that I quite frankly because of the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of me found it quite natural to go in among a bunch of people that I didn't have a clue about and began to establish relationships and I immediately fell in love with you. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you 
being affectionately desirous of you. Paul said, I wasn't just there to, I wasn't just there to give you information. I, I wasn't just there to, to give you truth. Although he did, right? Paul said, I was, I, was, I was there to nurture you out of love, and I was, I was desirous of you. I wanted to be with you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become dear to us. Paul loved them. Look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you. So here's a loving mother that's nursing. Here's a loving father that's exhorting. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you will, look at verse 17. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Paul said, I wanted to come be with you. That's love. Uh, so here's this, here's this ministry of presence where Paul is going, and he, he said, I just was so thrilled and in love with you while I was there. And these were, let me remind you, these were strangers. Who do you love like that besides your children or your brother or your sister or your husband or your wife? These were complete strangers and Paul loved them because he wanted them to come to an understanding of the gospel and be saved. Not only did he love them, but secondly, we know that he labored among them. Chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered... I don't know about you, but when, when, I, when I got, when I, if I'd have gotten my behind kicked at Philippi like he did, I would have said, we're going back home. It's safe at home. It's comfortable at home. It's easier at home. I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm going back to Antioch. I'm going back to a safe place. But Paul said, no. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, Paul said, we've got to find somewhere where people will hear the gospel. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So, so he's, he's saying, we, we labored among you. Look at verse number 9. I've already, I've already mentioned it. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of of God. Paul said, I, I, I laid my life down for you. I laid my resources down for you. I laid my time down for you. I was willing to work to the point of exhaustion for you. I was willing to come and support my own self and not expect support from you. And I was willing to work an 8 or a 10 or a 12-hour day. And then I was willing to, whenever I had free time or whenever I didn't have free time, I wanted to see you come to an understanding of the gospel. I love Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Um, listen to what Paul said. He said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. 
So we see Paul's love and we see Paul's labor. It's easy to forget to do that. I had an incident just this week where um, it was actually in our staff meeting and an issue came up and something just back, back where I came from, they said the, the, they'd say the fire flew through him, right? You ever heard that phrase? The fire flew through him. That means that you can go from being real calm one minute to being real hot the next. And you, you can be loving everybody one minute and you can be ready to slap somebody upside the head the next. And the fire flew through me and there was an issue. And I started, I started wanting to fight that issue. I, I, was, I was given all the reasons, and man, I can give you all kinds of reasons, and I, can, and I was going to be right because, because it, it's either be right or die, right? And I forgot that there were people sitting around the table that needed a shepherd's heart, not a debater spirit, Right? They needed somebody that would love them. They didn't need somebody to walk in in front of a bunch of people half their age to start trying to flex his muscle and prove how much he knew and how important he was and how he was going to be on the right side of the issue. I didn't think anything about it in staff meeting. I mean, draw a line, be right. Walk out. Whoa. Somebody said, what, what, were you, what were you doing? What were you thinking about? They said, you checked your gifts at the door when you did that. Right? We need to go into the world not ready to fight it. The world's messed up. I was at a football game Friday night, and I, I'm standing in the bleachers, and we're, at a, we're on the visitor side. And this guy walked up to me and he started talking about our team and their team. Our team comes from a high school of about 250 students. Their team had 2,000 students. Our team won because my son-in-law's coach. And he just gives advice from me and I tell him how to win and he's, he's, he's a winner. And the guy said, he said, uh, he said, I'm over here on the visitor side. He said, because the other side over there, my school, where my kid goes to school, he said, it's crazy over there. He said, it's crazy. He said, all the identity stuff, he said, it's just, they've gone mad over there. He said, I'm over here on the visitor side, and, and I, I'm thinking, folks, the world's messed up. The world's messed up, but what, what they, they know that people know how to fight. They know that people know how to debate. I mean, they're on Facebook, right? Can, can, I, can I just say this about Facebook? If, if what comes out of you isn't loving, stop debating for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it, it's probably generated from a hateful place, number one. And number two, half the time you're probably wrong. Half the time, I've, I've read some really smart people's reasoning processes and I'm just like, that has so many holes in it. An elementary school student could figure out that they're wrong. Stop getting on Facebook in the name of Jesus and especially in the name of South Point and getting in fights with people. Please stop it. Because people don't need somebody who can win arguments 
People need somebody who are filled with the Spirit and can love them and can labor among them so that their heart will be transformed by the gospel. You don't always have to be right. I don't always have to be right. You say, you don't love the truth. I love the truth. I love the truth. I love the truth. I'm 63 years old and I've given my life for the truth. But Paul loved them and he labored among them. Did he give them the truth? Yeah, he gave them the truth and they received the truth probably because he was speaking the truth in love and it was coming from somebody that they were absolutely convinced loved them. So Paul's love, Paul's labor, Paul's longing. Let me, let me just sum it up. Paul said, my hope is that you will hope in Christ. My joy is that you will find your joy in Christ. My victory in life is when you experience the victory of Christ and your victory will be in Christ. My glory, the thing that gives me value, is giving my life so that you might know and follow and live for Christ. My joy is to sacrifice everything that we can spend eternity in heaven together. And Paul said, and I want to live right now like it has already happened on earth as it is in heaven. So, so this past week, who did you stand in front of? And your heart said, I love you. I'm willing to labor among you for the sake of the gospel. And my longing." My longing is for you to be with me in heaven. That's what Paul said in, in verses 19 and 20. He said, what is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of rejoicing? He said, is it not you? Is it not you when Christ comes back that you will be standing there with me? So who do you love? How are you laboring? And when is the last time you looked at somebody in the eyes and you thought, man, I hope when Jesus comes back that you will be standing there with me. Right? When's the last time you... We were at a place this week, this, this, this past week, we went in to eat some, some chicken and wild rice. Amen. And we were there for about 20 minutes. And they decided after 20 minutes to tell us they were out of it. My taste buds were already singing chicken and wild rice. You know? I wonder if I could have looked in that young man's eyes and longed for him to be in heaven with me. I wonder if the person in the checkout line at Ingalls, if I could look in her eyes or his eyes, or the person that's bagging my groceries at Publix, if I could look in his eyes or her eyes and long for them to be in heaven with me. I wonder if you could look at the people that, that just aggravate the stew out of you. And you could look in their eyes and long for them to be in heaven with you. That's what Paul is saying. What is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of rejoicing? How is heaven going to come to earth? Heaven is going to come to earth when there are people walking around on earth who are so heavenly minded that they long for people on earth to go to heaven with them. That's what Paul is saying. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that? We've got a young lady from our community. 
Um, she visits our church when she's home. Um, but she found herself in a foreign country that was at war with another foreign country, and she was stuck there. Her parents go to South Point. They're part of South Point. And I'm like, why in the world would a single woman want to go to a country like that? And if I said the name of the country, you'd know it immediately. It's in the news all the time. Because she wants people there who have never heard the gospel to know Jesus Christ. And so she's there risking, literally risking her life, loving, laboring, longing. She got out of that country. She's in another country now trying to help refugees out of another country. And I don't want to name the name of the countries or give her name, although it might be safe to do that. I don't want to say anything dumb up here, any dumber than what I've already said on Sunday morning. Should that be so unusual? Or should it be normal if Christ is at work in our hearts and in our lives. So another guy, a part of our church, he got married and immediately went to the Ukraine and then he came back and served in a church. And after he was in the Ukraine, he came, he, he, after he served a church in another state, he ended up going to the most atheistic country on the face of the planet. Why? And laboring there. And in fact, yesterday... He found himself at the University of Georgia because there's a young man in our church that, that heads up the spiritual department of a fraternity and he's got 20 guys that lead small groups and this guy from our church went to that city in Athens to lead those small group leaders in how to have effective small groups that focus on Christ and how to care for one another's soul. Why does somebody do that? Was up at McDonough a couple of weeks ago, and some of you know Tony Lee. Um, I think I'm not sure where Tony's from, but he's standing out by the road. <laughs> he's holding a sign, prayer station. People are passing out. He's he's a, he's a better man than I am. He's standing out by the road in front of the McDonough building, and he's waving at people holding up a sign, prayer station. And believe it or not, but people are stopping by and asking for prayer. And they're praying for him right there in the parking lot. Why? Because they want to reach him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bill rolls in here every week in his chair. Forgive me, Bill. Works with the FCA and wants to take the gospel to young students. And so he's going, when you don't see him here, he's going somewhere else to proclaim good news. Loving, laboring, longing. A friend of mine called me. He said, my church of 50 people, we're trying to do a work over in Ghana. He said, I've got an open door. He said, would y'all help us at South Point? We need some people to actually go and teach people there in Ghana and disciple them. Why? Because... They want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. 
we support missionaries like Travis and 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 Mark and and the Robertsons and 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 we want to see them in the Brewskis. We want we want to be a part of what they're doing. We're short on food in the food pantry, and this is not an advertisement for the food pantry, but we're collecting food and we're trying to help people because we want to love them. We want to labor among them, but ultimately our longing is they come to know Jesus Christ. This passion, this missionary zeal should beat deep within the heart of every transformed believer. I'm not up here trying to, trying to point out these people and exalt them. I'm just saying that whatever is beating in their heart ought to beat in our heart. Right? Whatever is beating in their heart to love and to labor and to long to see people in heaven with them ought to beat in our heart. Heart, it ought to burn within our soul to say, I've got to go. I've got to share. I don't want to be amused or entertained. I don't want to accumulate the trinkets of the world. I don't want acreage or bank accounts. I don't want to travel to all the weird places. I don't want curio cabinets and collections. Paul would say, I want to see people come to Christ. This world calls and it pulls and it lies and it beckons us to come and lie and it's lie and it beckons us to come and recline and take our ease and it flushes our brain with dopamine and it exhilarates us and it stimulates us and on a sensory, sensual, fleshly level, the world offers us things that cannot compare to what Jesus is offering us. Hold on, hold on, hold on. On a sensory level, Right? On a fleshly level, you say, well, I disagree with you. Well, good. Go join Paul while he's sitting in a stinking jail in Philippi. Ain't no dopamine or adrenaline there. All he needs there is alcohol, hydrogen peroxide, penicillin shot, bandages, in stocks, chains rattling, all because he's telling people about Jesus. What Christ offers us is something different than this world offers us. The call of the gospel is not a dopamine high or a chemical high or an adrenaline rush from computer-generated fake images and experiences. The call of the gospel is to trade all of that in for poverty and for flogging and for being canceled and for inciting a riot and for being run out of town and then on to the next town to be run out of that town all so that you can intersect on purpose with someone or someone's that you can share the gospel with. And when it's all said and done and the Spirit has generated new life in them, that'll be better than any joint that you could smoke or any pill that you could take. When you see new life generated in people that you never knew, but all of a sudden the Spirit has saved them, you will be so overwhelmed, so beside yourself at the power and grace of God in your poverty and in your pain when, you're, when you're, you're, your joints ache and your heart is broken and you can look some dear soul in the face. And this is what Paul is saying in this verse. When you can look some dear soul in the face and you can say, hey, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about my hope. It's not in this world. Let me tell you about my joy. 
Let me tell you about the thing that I said, man, if I can have this, I'll have life. My crown of rejoicing. He said, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about it. He said, it's you. It's you. It's you. What is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of rejoicing? He said, it's seeing you people believe the gospel, right? And knowing that when I get to heaven, you will be standing there with me. Paul said, what do I consider ultimate victory in life? What do I consider success in life? He said, it is you. It is you who came from death to life. It is you who came out of darkness into light, from being orphans to sons and daughters. And when you and I live there, we experience the answer to the prayer on earth as it is in heaven. When we are loving and when we are laboring and when we are longing, we will find ourselves intersecting with people who we one day will be able to look in the eye and say, what is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of rejoicing? It's you. It's you and me standing together in the presence of Jesus. I think of it often. I think of the song, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? It's an old song. It probably doesn't have a cool tune. I had to memorize it because I got in trouble in school a lot, and they made us memorize Scripture as punishment, and they made us memorize songs as punishment. So I'm not looking up the song. I'm looking at the verse that I'm going to share with you for communion as we, as we close. But it says, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And should I bear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Right? Are you a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Do you own his cause? He saved you to own his cause and to own his cause is to speak his name. Think about this. Think about this in a, in a, a plush America, must I be carried through the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Sure, I must fight if I would gain. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. And that is the call to every believer, to love, to labor, to long, and to stand before people and say, what is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of rejoicing? It's you. Do you have people that you can say that to? Do you have people, when you die and your casket's laid out here, that are going to, and I don't, I don't, yeah, I, don't I, I won't say what I like or don't like. And somebody says, does anybody have anything to say? And somebody stands up and says, I was in darkness. I was lost without Jesus Christ. But you know what? I met that guy in the checkout line at Kroger one day. 
And I looked in his eyes or her eyes and I saw that somebody loved me like nobody's ever loved me. And I felt cared for like nobody ever cared for me. And I saw somebody sacrifice like nobody ever sacrificed for me. And I just sensed over time that there was this longing that they had for me, that they wanted something different for me. And because they loved and because they labored and because they longed, I will be standing with them in heaven. That's a win. That's the only victory. That's the only victory. I would challenge you, South Point, to live like Paul lived in Locust Grove, like he lived in Thessalonica, so that we can say, in Locust Grove, as it is in heaven.